Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 70 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions combines state-of-the-art shared storage hardware with intuitive media management software and powerful integrations for Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com and start creating amazing content faster. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Holfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Joan Sobel, ACE. Sobel worked as a first assistant editor to editing legend Sally Menke on several films, including both Kill Bill films. She edited the 2002 Oscar-winning short The Accountant and the 2005 feature film The Quiet, followed by a steady stream of work including A Single Man, Admission, and The Perfect Guy. I'd previously interviewed Joan about her work on Tom Ford's haunting 2016 film Nocturnal Animals. Just Google Joan Sobel, Art of the Cut, to read that interview. Today we discuss editing for director Reed Moreno on The Rhythm Section, which stars Blake Lively and Jude Law. Was it really fun to edit? It was very, very creative. It was very creative. I mean, we did a lot in the cutting room and tried a lot of things. Um, it was very experimental, certainly, uh, and we took risks with it, but it was fun. I mean, it's great. Reed is great. Barbara Broccoli is phenomenal. I mean, she was, you know, there aren't that many creative producers anymore, really, in film. I'm sure you know that. And Barbara is one of them. She is just a joy to work with. And for those that don't know that name, that's uh, like James Bond uh, stuff right there. Yes, it was actually Barbara and Michael Wilson. And... uh, Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson are James Bond. Barbara is Cubby Broccoli's, or Albert Broccoli's daughter, and Michael is his son. Talk to me a little bit about producing in the edit room. Like, what creatively are you getting? Just, is it notes? Is it story concepts? Is it tone? What is it that the producers actually... You know, the the rhythm section is an interesting movie because it is... uh, you know, kind of in the genre of an action film. But it's not quite an action movie. It's Reed really wanted to do something different Um, because we've all seen the same thing over and over and over again. And she really wanted to concentrate on the darkness of this character, um, of the Stephanie character, and the plight that she's going through. And, you know, we... I think also the fact that this is a woman, um, which is very unusual. There's only been a few of those movies. Uh, Atomic Blonde, which is a completely different film and a great, it's one of my favorites, actually. I love it. And Elizabeth Ronald's daughter is a very good friend of mine, and she's just phenomenal. But that movie was a rough and tumble, heavily choreographed, everything spelled out kind of a movie um, with a very tough heroine. This was the antithesis of that. Instead, it's a very dark look at a, a young woman, sort of like you, me, anybody, who becomes an assassin reluctantly and is not very good at it. 
So she's sort of, she's kind of, you know, she's stumbling through and half the time you don't even know how she survives. So that was a challenge to do that and to have that darkness too. Um, so there were many different tonal shifts that we had to try in the cutting room. Uh, one of the things you talked a little bit about being creative. Um, one of the things I was thinking of creatively early on was the sound design, which I couldn't figure out whether it was sound design or score at the very beginning. She's having these memories shortly after she meets this journalist at the beginning of the movie and she's kind of remembering her family and there's some great sound design in there. Did you start that in your picture at it? We started that pretty early on, um, uh, working with the sound designer, Oliver Tarney, uh, who's actually is doing Bond right now and did 1917. And he's a wonderful sound designer. And, um, and also uh, Rachel, who's the ADR and dialogue editor, is amazing. But we, I started working with Oliver pretty early on. Um, I worked with him when we were doing the car chase scene way back when I was doing my editor's cut. So we started putting together some sound design and talking about that and when she goes back and remembers her family, remembers the pain. Uh, we worked a lot on that. So it was fairly early. But it's, it's interesting because it almost sounds like score, but not, I mean, there's some great, like, I don't know. It is a combination. There's a combination of the score, which that was interesting because the score really wasn't done until very, very, very late in the process, uh, and it was Hans Zimmer, it was Steve Mazzaro uh, with Hans Zimmer, and that was also incredibly creative. They were amazing. I mean, they, they did it, and just, Hans just so got this, and Steve got this, and they did a beautiful, beautiful job. Um, I tempt with a whole bunch of different things, and, and we've tried so many different kinds of uh, music. I was trying not to make it too dark, too, because the movie itself is so dark. Um, but it was uh, interesting trying to keep a tonal um, uh, sort of consistency in it, uh, in the temp. And, and Reed loves music. I mean, she just is amazing with music and had we tried so many things we had a library that was incredible and if you ask me to remember what it is I won't remember <laughs> this is actually you're, you're testing my memory because this was actually quite a long time ago you know the movie got pushed um, and so I actually finished the movie back in March Reed is one of my favorite directors. Oh my gosh. One of the reasons why I was looking forward to this interview, in addition to you, of course, is I love the fact, did she operate on this movie? I heard, she does that sometimes, right? Uh, Sean also did. You know, Sean operated, Sean Bobbitt, who did an amazing job, and Reed. I mean, together, they're like, what a dynamic team. And they just adored each other. And Reed is really one of the loveliest people She's just, I don't, I don't know if you've ever met her, but she's very charming and um, sort of her beauty is kind of inside and out. And it really was fun, so much fun working with her because uh, she's young and she's willing to try anything and she really wants to do things differently. 
than the than the norm. And so we, you know, we took risks with it. Some succeeded, some didn't. <laughs> well, that's the way it works, right? Like I think that's one of those lessons for young editors is uh, it's okay to to work hard and try something that does not bear fruit. Yes, yes, and you know you get so much out of it. Um, I mean, there were a lot of things, problems that we had to solve and see what we could do and the creativity involved in that. To me, that's what's so valuable as an editor. I mean, I don't usually talk about editing. I think it's very difficult to talk about editing because it's almost like talking about acting. It's alchemy in many ways. What I love about editing is the experimentation of it is the creativity of it. I came out of, uh, I, was, I was an artist. I mean, I started out as an illustrator. Um, didn't really go to film school or anything like that. I did experimental films when I was in college. But I love movies that really take a risk and love all sorts of movies. In fact, I just, I, I was kind of sad that I had to come to New York not that I was sad because I came for the premiere, but I was sad because on Sunday in L.A. at the um, uh, Disney Hall, they were showing Sunrise, a tale of two humans, which I hadn't seen in quite a while, but it's the silent movie by F.W. Murnau that was, I believe, the first uh, Academy Award winner with Janet Gaynor who also won the Academy Award. And what they did was they stripped out the old score for the silent movie, and Jeff Beale, who I believe composes for um, many different things, especially for television, wrote a new score that was choral, and they had the um, L.A. Philharmonic choral sing along with this, and... I had, I had to give my tickets away, but I heard from the people who went that it was extraordinary. And you look at that film, and you look at films from the past, and there's so much innovation there. We think we are so original, but we're really not. Um, and that's what I love. I love that emotional reaction that you get when you see this juxtaposition of putting an image with an image and what can happen with that. And I felt like the rhythm section, we really did a lot of things like that. You mentioned that you did a lot of creative problem solving. Can you explain some of the problems that you needed to solve and how you came overcame them? Early on, we, we sort of had an issue with an audience reaction to Stephanie coming to Sarah's house. And then they, they do have a sex scene. Um, and I had that in for a long time, and it just somehow wasn't quite playing. And there was a very long dialogue scene that happened before it, so it almost came to a halt with the dialogue scene, and then you had the sex scene, and it wasn't, wasn't really working. And one of the things that we came up with was to almost flash forward to the sex scene in the middle of this conversation that they're having, to almost make it seem as if it's a fantasy in their heads about each other rather than an actuality of it. 
And Reed, I think, and, and I could be wrong about this because I don't know that much of her work, but um, she seems to love camera movement. Uh, and and the camera is moving for a significant portion, but then sometimes it's not. And I was wondering uh, for you as an editor, is there something that having a camera moving, does that affect pace? I mean, it's difficult. It's very difficult because you get, as any editor knows, you get all this camera movement and it's a lot of handheld which is what she loves. Um, and then if there's nothing, it's very difficult to cut up against it because you just, the cut then stands out like a sore thumb. Um, but there's ways to do it. And I think because she shot so much of this handheld, it was very challenging to edit. Uh, and because there were some moments when it was still. But the camera literally would be spinning around the room and you wouldn't necessarily be on the person who was talking. But it also kept the energy up and it kept that visceral feeling of uh, being or seeing everything and feeling everything through this character's eyes because that's really what Reed's vision was, is that we would experience this. We would experience her pain, we would experience her fall, we would experience her um, grief and her fear, uh, which was really captured in the car chase. Um, that was, I mean, that was a brilliant move on Reed's part to keep that camera in the car with Blake. And when Blake is screaming, she really is <laughs> screaming out of fear because the way that was done was, and it was, I mean, Sean was unbelievable too. I don't know if you know uh, Sean Bobbitt at all, but you know, he's a very tall guy and this car that she was in was this really tiny little car and they had to like rip out the seat next to her. And he was crammed in there with a, a device that could swing back and forth. And the sound guy was in the back seat, like scrunched in the back. And there was a guy mounted on top of the car in, uh, that was rigged up. He was actually driving it. So Blake was in the car with a wheel experiencing everything, but she had no control over the car. I was like, is she really driving this thing? Because it was so visceral and real and frightening. Um, so that was just genius on Reed's part to really keep that inside because we've all seen car chases a gazillion times and, you know, and there was footage outside of the car just in case, but we didn't, we never used it. She did everything. I mean, the whole fight scene with Jude Law, the hand-to-hand -hand fight scene, which was one shot, um, there's one cut in it and, uh, which, you know, was unfortunate. We, we had to put a cut in there, but unfortunately we did because there was, uh, <laughs> there was just one shot that nobody particularly liked. I got a couple more uh, uh, specific questions that I wanted to ask you about. And, and again, I know, testing your memory, I understand. Uh, shot size selection, and this you might, you might be able to pull just not even from memory, but your personal aesthetic. She's with the journalist, I can't remember his name. and Proctor. Uh, Proctor. So 
Proctor and Stephanie are having a conversation early on and the shots of her are quite tight and the shots of him are always wide. And, and that's yes. throughout the entire scene. Yes. That's the way it is. Close on her, wide on him. That was a choice that Reed wanted to have. Oh, I'm sure. I was just trying to figure out if there was a, if you could remember the dialogue about that and why that was uh a choice of close on one, wide on the other? You know, again, she wanted you... Proctor is really a, a secondary character, although he's the one who sets everything in motion. And it's really not what he's saying. I mean, it is what he's saying to her, but it's not really important to be on him. It's much more important to be on her. Um, so... I think that was Reed's reasoning is once again to stay with her. Always stay with her. A question of perspective. Yes. Yes. Sometimes, and I loved it, you would, uh, we would experience jumps in time through jump cuts. And other times you use dissolves. Why, uh, why use both of those? And was there a reason sometimes to use a, a cut to experience time and sometimes dissolves? Well, the cuts obviously are much more probably in the style of this movie. And I try to, I usually try to avoid using dissolves. However, there were certain moments, um, and I don't think there are that many dissolves. I mean, the ones that I can think of certainly are when she's waiting outside uh, Proctor's and she's looking up and it goes from her face to her face to like this close-up of her face and it is just a time pass <clears throat> which would be kind of difficult to do uh in that case and maybe the bus when she's taking the bus it's not when she's taking the bus it's when she's walking there was a lot of footage of her walking and walking and walking in scotland which was really beautiful i have to say um and in actuality, it wasn't Scotland. We, we actually shot that in Ireland and added mountains <laughs> to make it Scotland. But it was really extraordinary. And I actually loved that sequence. But we had to cut it down. And we had to give it some kind of a feel. It, it was much more jagged. There were much more shots of her stumbling around, having kind of withdrawal uh, and being so cold. But again, it's like the movie was just getting, it was too long. It was, we needed to get her, the movie truly kicks in when she gets to Boyd's. And so I think it was trying the patience of the audience a little too much. Because of that, I mean, I didn't really have dissolves. Because of that, I think there's only one, uh, I think there's only one dissolve there, which is from... The, the giant drone shot um, to her face when she finally sees the house, Boyd's compound. And that we needed to have some kind of a time frame. I mean, it's as simple as a, a, a time lapse. And then there was, I know there were a series of dissolves much later on when she goes to Sarah's and she's waking up. Um, and that was a bit of a lyrical getting her uh, grasp of where she is, taking a look at Sarah, seeing him in a very domestic setting where he's preparing tea, and she's just watching him. And it was getting her also 
you know, cry. I, I really, one of my pet peeves is, which I'm sure is every, every editor's pet peeve, is moving a character across a room. And I had to get her across the room because that's where he comes in. It was expediency sake with some lyricism involved. <laughs> and when you first see, and this is more directing maybe, but maybe you can tell me that there's some other, other um, coverage that you didn't use. But I loved when we first meet Jude Law's character that the whole thing is done on his shoes. <laughs> and how do you use shoes as a reaction shot? Because it's basically a reaction shot, but to somebody's shoes. So how does that work? Well, I did use them as a reaction shot. I had little moments, if you actually watch it, where he moves his the foot. foot. moves. Oh, no, I noticed, yeah. And especially when he says to her, you know, she says, I want to go, I want to kill uh, um, Reza. I'm going to kill him. And, she, and he goes, oh, he must be really scared, you know, because <laughs> you're going to come after him. You're lying on this ground and you can't even get yourself up. And there's a little moment with his foot, believe it or not, that is a reaction. I actually love the, the shoes. I love the boots. It was something that Reed wanted to do. She did do coverage of him. From what I can remember, I believe it was a, a side angle kind of. And it was, I felt like this was a far superior way to introduce him as these impersonal, militaristic uh, and threatening boots. And she is just out of it by that point. And then you finally see him at the end. And I thought that was a kind of a great intro for Jude, because otherwise his intro would have been a side angle shot interrogating her, which is not very interesting. And also keeps with that idea you said of her perspective that, that her, it's always her perspective and her perspective is she sees his boots. Boots. That's what she sees. She's, she's lying on the ground. She's like with the snot running out of her nose and everything and, and going through her withdrawals and listening to him and while she sees her boots so, until he literally lifts her up and puts his face in, and says, you know, you, you're just a big fuck up and you got Proctor killed. So... And is that the moment you reveal? Because then, of course, the question is, if you're on the boots for so long, cause, and I'm not saying it was too long, but you're on the boots for quite a while, the big question is, when do you reveal Jude's face? Well, we revealed him. He actually leaves the screen. He drags, he drags the, the uh, thing that he's sitting on in and then drags it off and goes off. And then when she says, you're B, your Proctor source, um, he gets so angry and at her that that's when he comes in and he grabs her by the lapels and tells her she's just a total fuck up and reveals his face, which is a, a great moment for Jude. I'll be back in a moment with more of my discussion with Joan Sobel, ACE. Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 70 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions combines state-of-the-art shared storage hardware with intuitive media management software and powerful integrations for Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com and start creating amazing content faster. Let's face it, we always need more storage for our media and projects, but sometimes having storage isn't enough. 
because the more you have, the harder it is to find your files. Studio Network Solutions understands that. That's why their EVO shared storage servers provide industry-leading performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing and also include an entire suite of features designed to help you organize and manage your media. Every system comes with built-in software so you can search, tag, and preview all your storage. Backup tools so you always know your media and projects are protected. And integrations for Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, Final Cut Pro 10, all included for free with your EVO shared storage server. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get 10% off of a new EVO system by going to studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and signing up for an online demo. If you're tired of rummaging through a mountain of drives to find your files, it's time to give your storage an upgrade. So before you add another drive to the pile, visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. And now back to my discussion with Joan Sobel, ACE. So there's a scene where she's learning to shoot and there's a scene where Jude's just running her ragged. And it's were those written to be separate scenes or were they written to be intercut? I love that they're intercut. Talk to me about choosing to intercut them. Um, well, they were written as separate scenes. Uh, as separate scenes, they, they went on too long and they didn't have a punch to them. And having them intercut, especially when he's talking, she's looking, are you talking about the scene where she's looking at the bullets? I just remember one, I mean, I thought there was only one place where intercutting, shooting and running were, were both intercut. There's actually a couple, I think, of intercuts. But the one that I have in my head is he's starting to talk to her about... The hollow points? And she's looking at them and she's feeling them and he's telling her what it does to people. And then she's, you know, going, it's intercut with her starting to shoot and learning how to shoot. And she's just shooting a target. And then at the very end of that intercut, he says, shoot me. And then she has, I think we did a, um, a montage of exactly what he had said before, which is, you know, the bullets uh, will blow out your heart and whatever, and then she fires. So on the one hand, it shows her as nervous, the nervous quality of her. On the other hand, it shows that she's willing to do it. So that's kind of the, um, it was it was difficult because she is such a f- screw up and she's so f- frightened all the time as we would be, but there had to be something that said, I'm ready to do this. I'm willing to do this. Not just running around shooting at a target. So if she knows what these, what she's about to do to somebody, to a human body, to a human being, and she pulls that trigger, nonetheless, risks Boyd. I mean, she shoots him basically a little high. (laughs) And um, I think it, it, it propels it forward so that then he says, you know, I'm going to put you out in the field. You're, you're kind of ready. So that was the reasoning behind that. We needed to get her to be at least semi-believable that she could do this. And it's the first time when she is willing to do it because before that, the only time she's really... Um, try to do some other than the fight that she has with boy the hand-to-hand fight and 
you know, and, and going into the water and all those things that are trying to prove her, who she is, it's a lot different than saying, you're going to pick up a gun and kill somebody and blow their body apart. And when she tries to do that at the beginning with Reza, where she has the opportunity to kill him in the cafeteria, she can't do it. So it's a way to build up that to that point. Right. And there's some interesting psychological stuff there, but the intercutting between the running and the shooting was just to kind of speed things up. Yes. And also, I mean, because, you know, the training part is, I mean, it's actually very short, but it, uh, it can be perceived as long because we've all seen those training things. And it was to show that this, this young woman is willing to do it. Yeah, and I did like just before she shoots him, and that's in the trailer. So I don't think we're giving, we're not spoiling too much that he he asked her to shoot him in the trailer. Um, but there, there, you mentioned the 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 section which is sound design, right? Because earlier in the sequence, he says, you know, the hollow points, you know, make do all this stuff to your flesh, and then he says, shoot me, and she aims at him, and there, it's nice because you had some great moments where you're like. I don't know if she's ready to shoot this. Like, I don't, this is not going to go well. And there's some really nice cutaways and reactions where you you really wonder, is this, this is not going to end well. But then there's also sound design where she remembers him saying what it's going to do to his body. Exactly. Just before she pulls the trigger. And she does pull the trigger. Even yeah. with that in her head, she pulls the trigger. To somebody who is helping her and to somebody who is conceivably a good guy. Correct me if I'm wrong, because this has got to be a directorial thing or maybe something you guys decided in editing, but um, before every one of her assassination attempts, there's like old pop music. That was, you know, the pop music was put in way later than I was already gone. Um, yeah, that was a decision. Uh, I, I actually think that was a Blake decision. She kind of wanted to put in some pop songs. And, you know, and it's, it, we've, we tried many things. I mean, I had, at the very beginning of the movie, um, when you have that sort of flash forward, when you see where she goes, the, it's the little layman's part where she lifts up the gun to his head. I had originally had in um, the Smashing Pumpkins, uh, you know, the killer in you is the killer in me. And and that was replaced with score for quite a long time, which was a really kind of uh, energetic, dynamic score. And then it got replaced by, by, I think, the Mamas and the Papas. I believe it's the Mamas and the Papas. I think it's Cass Elliot. No, it's Cass Elliot. Dream a little dream, I believe. Yeah. So there were, yeah, the 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 needle drops that went in um, went in way after me. Talk to me about structure of the film. Did it change significantly? Were there? I was trying to figure out whether there was any more backstory. Not that I would have wanted it, um, but with her, either her descent from after her her family's, you know, losing her family. Because she was, you learn later on in the movie, you're, you know, you went to Oxford, you know, um, but then you don't see any of that. You see her, basically, she's, you, she's at the bottom when you meet her. Uh, there was, there's no, no, nothing else was shot. There's a longer, what was, what there was, was a longer period of time in the brothel. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I'm glad that's not there, actually. There was a whole scene with, uh, with a pimp, and he was very abusive, and later on she kills him in the movie, and we took that out. First of all, again, as you said, it's like it was a long time in the brothel. I mean, that was one of the things that we really worked on condensing, the, condensing the whole first part until she gets to Boyd. You know, and the, and the thing was, Blake was so good in those scenes. She was just so good. And it was painful to take them out because, you know, you don't want to when you have performances. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah. But we had to. We just had to. Nobody wants to stay in that dark place. I, that's exactly how I feel. Like, I, I spent the right amount of time there. And if there was more to it, I wouldn't have... I don't think I would have reacted well to, to having to spend more time. You want to get to the, even though, you, I mean, you know Jude's there from the trailers, but you also just want to get out of that place. And it's hard to watch her being abused. She is punishing herself there. So, you know, I think she's punished herself and, and the audience is feeling what she's feeling. Once again, Reed was incredibly successful in getting the audience to... Uh, have this POV and feel what she's feeling. So when you're in the brothel, you don't want to feel it anymore. You've experienced the pain, you know where she is, and you want her to start climbing out of it. Yeah, exactly. Fortunately or unfortunately, there wasn't uh, any backstory that was shot. I mean, there was a lot of condensing, there was a lot of intercutting, there was a lot of moving around things. Um, and it was challenging to keep a tone that is not, I mean, there's a, there's a considerable amount of action, but there's also a considerable amount of this character study. Yeah. It's a psychological movie. Yes. Yes. And I think that that makes it, uh, difficult and challenging, but it also incredibly wonderful and fun for me as an editor and, uh, and, really kind of joyful to work with somebody like Reed who has a different vision and wants to change the game up. Um, and then have, a, you know, somebody like Barbara who has done Bond for all these years who's really willing to try that and to stand behind a, a true creative. I mean, she was incredibly supportive of all of us. I don't know, you know, read at all. My it's all in my head, <laughs> but I think of her. I think of her, you know, as a very production-oriented director, like camera, being on set. But what was she doing in post? Like, how was she in post? How were you guys uh, interacting? What were the decisions that she was trying to help you make, or that you were trying to help her uh, deal with? Well, I mean, I think I would, she would bring a lot of ideas to it. I would bring a lot of ideas to it. A lot of problem solving issues. Um, she was so open with collaborating. She wanted to maintain that dark, 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 dark tone. I think I was trying to bring a little bit of that tone up more. And I think we both sort of saw each other's point of view and worked together. But we really wanted this character to be from a woman's point of view. I think that that was 
so important that she wasn't in the male gaze, that this was more of a female gaze. And I think Reed truly succeeded in doing that. Did you use scene cards or anything to say, oh, no, yeah. You know, I never use scene cards. I just don't. Not everybody does. Yeah, I usually do something very simple where I have like a one line of each Mm -hmm. scene. And then, uh, I mean, I look at it and look at it and then decide I'm going to, if I'm going to move something, I'll move it and then have my assistants just redo it uh, once it's set so that I have then uh, a continuity, a very simple, easy continuity that I can just see. But I find cards um, can be very, uh, I, I think that it becomes a little too experimental where people will take them and kind of go, wee, and let's move here, 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 <laughs> and not really make a decision, which, yeah, I mean, this is, as, as you probably know, I mean, I come out of film, 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 and one of the things which is good, I mean, it's good and it's bad, is with Avid, um, you can certainly try things a lot faster and move things around a lot faster, but sometimes it also uh, prevents people from really making a decision and making a choice and truly thinking about it. And I think if you just do that, I don't think you need cards. I mean, I think probably in certain on certain films, it's it's very important. But I mean, I've done relatively complicated. I tend to do really complicated movies. Somebody get me something simple one of these days. <laughs> ready for a rom com, Joan? <laughs> I'm ready for a rom com. <laughs> but uh, I mean, something like Nocturnal Animals, which you would think that we would have used scene cards. I think we prepped scene cards. We we even prepped scene cards for the rhythm section, but we never used them. Yeah, I'm not saying they're, you know, for everybody or for every film. I was just curious because it the reason why I was thinking about it was just how long are you in those action scenes or how how spaced out are the action scenes compared to the more psychological scenes with her? Well, we're and definitely just, yeah, we're yeah. in the psychological scenes a lot more than the action scenes. Um and I think people aren't quite used to that because the, once you're in an action movie or if it's being designated as an action movie, then that's what you want to see. So you're trying the patience of the audience, but it makes it different. I was Sally Menke's first assistant editor for six years. Through, I think Kill Bill was, was the last ones that we did together. And I learned so much about character development from her because she always cut for character. And she also, we used to make scene cards for her and she never used them either. (laughs) (laughs) But you made them. We made them, but she never used them. Uh, But I, you know, I really do feel like I kind of have that legacy with me. And, um, and it's the character that always interests me. It's the psychological makeup of that character and where she finds herself and how she's going to react to it. And, so, and in a movie like this, it's a little difficult because we don't have that background that you're talking about, which you know could have helped, I think, but we're dropped in where she's dropped in. And then we watch her climb out of it. And I think that Blake brought so much and having the joy of cutting her 
of editing and sculpting that performance was a, a real thrill for me. Well, I can definitely see that your um, time with Sally showed up here in this character study. How do you remember that she was constructing or so concerned about character or doing something with character that was any different than what was in the script? You know, first of all, Sally studied psychology in, when she was in school. I mean, then she went to film school, but she always studied psychology, and there were those two sides to her where she was very drawn to observing human behavior. And when she would edit scenes, it, she did what I do. It's when I watch, I watch all the dailies, every piece from before the camera starts, you know, or before they hit the slate to afterwards. And looking at every little nuance that an actor can do, every little, an eye movement, a twitch in the cheek, something, and then you're, you're looking for that in the scene and you want to get to that point somewhere in that scene. And I, Sally would do that all the time. I watched her do it. Um, and she talked about it to me. She always cut for performance. And I, one of the last times I saw her, actually, it was sad and, and really loving, too. Um, I, she was doing, she was nominated for uh, uh, Inglorious Bastards, and, which was the last movie that she did with Quentin. Um, and I had done a single man at that time. And I remember coming in to Invisible Art, Invisible Artist, or Visible Art, whatever that thing is <laughs> they do right before the... <laughs> um, so Sally was there, and I came to see her. And when I walked in, she was talking... I can still remember this, because she was talking to Joe Klotz, uh, the editor, and, she, and he had done Precious. That was the same year he had done Precious. And I walked in, and she introduced me to him, and she put her arm around me, and she said... See, this is just what I'm talking about. She cuts for performance. And it was very, I mean, that to me was the biggest thrill because it is what I love more than anything. And sculpting and helping the actors and really bringing what they give to the forefront of a movie. So I hope I did that for Blake. I think she gave so much and, and I hope I did it for Reed, too. So. <laughs> On that lovely note, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. So good talking to you. Thank you, Steve. This was really lovely. And I'm so sorry that we had to wait so long to do this. Oh, no. It was worth it, though. Thank you, Joan. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Joan Sobel, ACE. I'm Steve Hullfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. Also, subscribe to this podcast and make sure to tell a filmmaking or film-loving friend. 